what in the fuck even is a whirling dervish, and how does it apply to this podcast in any way? I'm sure a lot of you Googled it right away. You were like, what even the fuck does this mean? And then you saw a bunch of dudes in, like, white gowns doing spins around as some kind of weird religious exercise. All right, well, let me tell you, I too had to look it up. By the time I had already decided it was going to be the title of my podcast. You see, I got it off of a bus driver lyric. A rapper who is extremely hyper-intelligent, who comes up with really interesting terms and phrases that he often makes up entirely himself. And one of them was the political whirling dervish. He describes a political whirling dervish. And as I was arguing about politics on Twitter, that lyric just kept repeating in my head over and over again. But the great thing about creating a term, creating a piece of art, is that you can come up with your own justification for why it makes sense and what it means. So here's what I've come up with. You see, the Whirling Dervish is basically a computer fan inside of my brain. You know, in your average everyday computer usage, you're on the internet, you're just browsing, you're just doing what you do, jacking off to porn, and your computer is fairly quiet. But as soon as you try to process a lot of information, say you're rendering a video or playing a graphically intensive video game, that fan starts a whirling, and it don't stop a whirling. And if you're not careful, that shit will overheat. Artso Fartso's Whirling Dervish is the cooling fan. It is the, the vent, the vent on the side of the computer that is needed for the air to get pushed out so that it doesn't just stay in there and get too hot and fucking explode. That's why I need this. What does that have to do with a dervish? Uh, um, I guess it's like totally like a religious experience, dude, to listen to this fucking podcast, man. So the comments on the first episode of the podcast were hugely gratifying. I was really proud of it. I really enjoyed doing it. I was hoping that people would be like, I demand more of this. I want this to be on all my podcast streaming services. I'm going to pay you even more money on Patreon. And it was exactly like that. And you know what? I've got it on the streaming services, all right? There's this site called Anchor that lets you upload podcasts and it just puts it on places. So it's already on Spotify. Go search it up. You can find it. It's getting posted to Apple Music. It's it's fucking happening. This is becoming a real fucking podcast. And it's all thanks to you people. But some of you also pissed me off with your fucking comments. So we got to dive into that. All right. So there were some people, there was a, a number of comments talking about especially how the early part of the video was basic. How it, it was just obvious stuff. Some people were upset that I was presenting it like I have such a unique opinion. Oh, you're such a, you don't fall into any group. You're not, you don't think like anyone else. You're so unique, except that the shit you're saying is all completely fucking obvious, right? Well, however, surrounding that are comments to the effect of, wow, you finally put words to something that I've never been able to explain, or man, this really opened my eyes. Now look, I am prone to something called spoon feeding. And part of me feels bad about it as a longtime 4chaner. And I understand why people don't like spoon feeding. So if you are not familiar with the concept, let me spoon feed it to you. Much like how you, when feeding a baby, will put the spoon in the applesauce and shove it in their fucking face. People will do this with information that can be easily discovered. 
So, for instance, let's say that someone posts a screen cap from a popular movie in a thread on 4chan, and somebody's like, what's the source? Where does this come from? Now, if you could just as easily have Googled that image and gotten the result, then you're wasting everyone's time by asking for a source. If somebody comes in and they tell you where this movie came from, it's information you could have discovered on your own. And I understand the mentality of not wanting to spoon-feed people because you want them to take initiative and discover things for themselves. But how are these people going to figure out how to do that? I love this one, this one page that's called Let Me Google That For You, where you can Google something for somebody, but it's in a way that it, it plays them a clip of going to Google, typing it in, and then clicking before it gives them the search results, so that you're basically saying to this person, hey, dipshit, next time you have such a basic-ass question, just fucking Google it, which is great. I think that that is a great teaching tool that still gives the people the information they need while showing them how in the future they can get it themselves. Because on the one hand, spoon-feeding, it goes a lot deeper than just explaining where the source of an image is. It also comes down to explaining jokes, explaining culture. And I understand why cultural gatekeeping is a thing, why it's important to some people, because you don't want to dilute the culture that you belong to. You don't want people to come in who don't understand it and then don't put any effort into understanding it and then think that they understand it. You don't want people to just be given the answers and then to just go, oh, now I know, and then go around talking like they know when they haven't made any discovery for themselves, especially when you had to put the effort into discovering something, when you had to actually, you know, engage with the culture in order to learn. I highly agree with 4chan's lurk more mantra, that if you don't know what's going on, hang out for a while, study the field. Figure it out for yourself. And then if you still have questions after a while, if you feel that there are things that can't be answered by lurking, that's when you can go and start asking questions. And people will know. They will know whether the questions you're asking are reasonable because they know how much information is forwardly present in their community. So to those people, it will probably be seen as insulting if you were to, for instance, come into even a Reddit board. And on the sidebar, they have all this information that's like the frequently asked questions. And you come in and start a thread asking one of those questions. Everybody on the board is going to be like, it's right there in the fucking sidebar. You couldn't have spent the two seconds of effort to try to research the community that you're joining before trying to participate in it. Why would you just join a group and think that immediately you have a voice in that group? So I understand all that. However... I also really don't like to be misunderstood, and I want people to learn. I want people to eventually get there. The problem with stonewall gatekeeping is that the people who you are gatekeeping from, they will never get in, and I want them to eventually get in. I understand the fear of having the wrong people get in, but everybody needs to first have the chance to prove themselves before they can prove themselves. You can't have somebody make it in if 
maybe there's somebody who would be appropriate for your community. And if you were to just give them a little bit, if you were to just give them the initial push on the way towards understanding what your thing is all about, then they might eventually get it and they might eventually be welcome. I like to think of myself as a sort of stopgap. I like to think that I am giving people enough information that they can then go forth and get more. And this is why a lot of people who consume my content, they eventually move on because the appeal of it is that it is revelatory to them. A lot of my audience gets in when they're in their late teens, maybe even early teens, and they feel like they're learning a lot. They feel like they're changing the way that they think about stuff. But once you've changed the way you think, you will never have that effect from that same content again. You will never have, once again, that feeling of like, wow, this has completely changed my worldview if you're still listening to the same person who has the same worldview. Now, if that person brings something new to your attention, maybe you'll have a a subsequent minor revelation. But in the end, the purpose of it is not to constantly be evolving your mind. It's just to be getting you caught up. It's to take you from knowing nothing to knowing something so that you can then learn more on your own. And most people will have more specialized interests. They won't necessarily go down the same tangents that I will. I'll take my ability to learn and I'll learn something I'm interested in and I'll talk about that. You now have the ability to learn about something you're interested in. So you might not even care about the things I talk about that I've taken that learning ability to. You just want to take that learning ability and go do something fun for you. And that's totally understandable. I understand why there's a turnover. But there will always be new teenagers. There will always be new people who don't completely get it, who haven't figured out how to learn for themselves, who haven't entered this world. And so if you listen and you think this is very basic, it's because you're already on the level. And I apologize that you're going to have to hear a whole lot of recursion, a whole lot of things you've already thought about, things that maybe you've even heard me say before. But it's necessary because if I just escalate the conversation to a point where I assume that everyone knows what I'm talking about, that you already feel the same way as me, then anyone observing who doesn't have those qualities is going to be confused. And this is the source of most of the conflict that I get into on the internet, especially on Twitter. It's a whole lot of me trying to say something that makes perfect sense to me and that I know will make perfect sense to people who are following my narrative or who are thinking similarly to me, but there's enough people who see it who don't really know where I'm coming from who are just confused on such a fundamental level that I feel like I have to back up and give them the history of the universe as I understand it in order to get them to the point where they know what the hell I'm saying. As you might be able to tell, you are listening to episode two of Artso Fartso's Whirling Dervish podcast. I've decided that I do the introduction 10 minutes in because I want to come in hot. All right. I already told you you can find this on the podcasting apps. If you want to support this show, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash digibro. It's not technically Artso Fartso's Patreon, but it contributes to my existence. I also have with me my Tard Wrangler, Pantsu Party, just in case things get too fucking weird. She'll be there to make sure that I'm kept in line. What do you have to say for yourself, Pantsu? I really have to poop. I am waiting for the right moment to completely disrupt um, Artzo's train of thought. So what got me on the topic of spoon feeding in the first place, what put that in my mind, was 
that on the opposite side of the spectrum in the comments on the last podcast, you had the people who were like, this is basic. And then you had the people who were like, I was confused within one minute of this podcast. There were a bunch of comments like that. And it took me a minute to understand why they were confused. And then I realized it's because of the use of the word boomer. And then I had to ask myself, do I want to explain this? Because it's definitely spoon feeding to explain this. It would not be hard for you to figure out what I mean in the way I use boomer. There was one comment that was particularly hilarious that was like, you can't just suddenly become a boomer. Boomers are a generation that's, you know, on the way out. Like, there's, there's all these different generations. You don't just, like, being a boomer doesn't mean being a certain age. That's the joke. So, let me go ahead and spoon feed. In recent popular meme culture, there has been this idea of the 30-year-old boomer. It's a joke on 4chan just an ageist meme, and I love ageist memes. So, you know, the boomer generation, the baby boomers, is it's a name for a generation of people who were born uh, post-World War II up through pretty much like the Vietnam War when there was just a, a massive amount of babies being made. And for good reason. We were in a period of rapidly increasing industrialization. We needed more people to fill more jobs. The government was literally telling people to have as many kids as possible, to consume as much as possible. This is why all our grandparents are hoarders, because that is what they were taught at the time as, like, the way to progress society. The reason we have the idea of the nuclear family, the idea of, like, you have to own your own house with a lawn and all your own things, and you have to buy fucking literally every conceivable tool for your house, is because that was how we built up the economy at the time. Eventually, it came back to bite us in the ass. It was a short-term solution, but when we got to a point, and we couldn't have predicted this, we couldn't have predicted that we were going to reach a point where we didn't need more industry, where we were building robots that could do that stuff for us, and where everybody was moving into the tech sector, and where big ideas by one person are revolutionary instead of you know, uh, creating enough people to execute a revolutionary idea. So this is why the baby boomers, who are still around... Most of them are still alive, but they are dying out, are blamed for a lot of the problems facing millennials, my generation, because of the fact that the boomers are still in the job market and it's been difficult for people of my generation, which is smaller, to break into the job market because – you know, there's not enough jobs to go around. We have all this surplus of people, but a diminishing number of jobs that we need those people for, and therefore new people can't get jobs. This is the the sort of talking point that's gone around for the last decade and a half or so. But it started to enter popular culture more and more as more people were complaining about the boomers, including me. Well, boomer is also taken as a mentality, a set of values, particularly that boomers don't understand the internet, they don't know anything about, like, the new world that is being built around them, they don't really know what's going on. And so, there became this sort of joke that anybody who acts like a boomer in any way, even if you are internet savvy, even if you are, like, in no way a boomer, if you're just a Gen Xer, um, you're a boomer now, 
because of the fact that you, you don't know what Pokemon is, you know, like anybody who's like above the age of what is the zeitgeist that of what people who still understand what's really going on in pop culture. If you're too old to like know who Cardi B is like, then you are a boomer. So the Gen Xers who are the generation that came after the boomers are now just basically called boomers. So if you were to go on 4chan, the, the new generation of kids who, who have turned pretty much like are turning 18, 20 around this time, maybe 23. Um, anyone who was born after 97, basically, that's a separate generation from the millennials. Millennials are people who came of age around the turn of the century, who grew up in a time when computerization was spreading. Zoomers are people who came up in a time when computerization was in the palm of your hand, because it is a significant cultural difference, a significant difference in understanding between that generation and the one before, which is basically how you categorize a generation. It's when there's a major shift in the way people perceive the world or the way that the world actually functions around them. And when you're part of a generation that doesn't quite get it, when you're in a position where your generation is a little bit lost about what's going on because you're too old, that is when you are no longer the current new generation. So millennials stopped being the current generation when kids started being born with a smartphone in hand. And that is the Zoomers. We call them Zoomers because millennials were also referred to as Generation Y because of the fact that there was Generation X, so all the news media outlets just went, well, the next one must be Y. Doesn't matter that we weren't doing things alphabetically at all before this. But thankfully, Generation Y sounded stupid, so so millennial caught on. But then the next one is being called Generation Z, and nobody's thought of a better name for it. So on the internet, we started calling that Zoomers. So there's Zoomers and Boomers. The fact that they sound the same is funny. So basically, there became this dichotomy of you're either a Zoomer or a Boomer, except that Millennials don't really fit into either category. So the meme sprang up that they are Doomers. So now you've got Zoomer, Doomer, Boomer. There is no name for Gen Xers because it doesn't fit in with this meme. It's just a meme. It's just a funny way to make fun of old people is the word boomer. So when I call myself a boomer, I am playing into this meme. You could have figured this out. You could have Googled it. You could have just Googled. You could just literally Google boomer and then go to know your meme. And it would explain basically all the shit I just did. Probably. I don't know. I haven't actually checked, but that is what spoon feeding is. And the reason that I just did it is because, while on the one hand, yes, it would be nice if I didn't have to waste my time explaining something over and over again every time I make a joke. It's really obnoxious. I want to just be able to make the joke, and if you get it, then you can laugh, and if you don't get it, you move on. However, I also feel like if I do explain it, more people will think it's funny more people will understand what the fuck I'm saying in my goddamn podcast. I won't get comments like these. And I read my comments. I care about the response. I care about the effects that my videos are having on people because all of them are attempting to have an effect. I am always attempting to make you realize something. And the reason I'm doing that is because I am somebody who is very easily misunderstood for reasons talked about in the last podcast. I never had 
any semblance of normalcy in my life. My whole life, people have just not known what my deal was. So I want you to know what my deal is so that I can normalize myself. So that more people will get me and therefore they will understand my needs and my frustrations and my, you know, desire to have the world evolve into a certain way that would be beneficial for me. There's this great quote from Hunter Thompson that I sampled in my song Freak Power, which is named after his political movement, where he talks about how one of the best things he can say about America is that it's one of the only social and political systems on earth where someone like him could function. And he knows that for a lot of people, that might even be the best argument for destroying that system is to get rid of someone like him. But there's lots of people like him. There's people like me. And if the system doesn't work for me, I have no recourse. You have to kill me. If we're talking about, say, the civil system for psychopaths, everyone's agreed that this is a system that works. We've all agreed that this system will make the most people the happiest, but it won't work for me. So I'm going to end up in the psychological prison because I just don't have the mind that fits into this society and can be satisfied by it. So on the one hand, I appreciate the idea of Let's try to find a system that makes the most people the happiest possible. And I understand why people have that kind of collectivist viewpoint. But just because I won't fit into that, I basically have to confront you and say, hey, you can do that, but you will fuck me if you do that. So you have to be okay with that. And a lot of people are okay with it. I would even say probably most people are okay with it. But thankfully, the very smart people who built this country I live in built it on the principle that we don't kill people based on who they are, that you can be whoever you are in this system. And even if a lot of people would want me dead, they have to, at the very least, admit that they are being anti-American if they do that. And Americans do not like to be accused of being anti-American, let me tell you what. What I think I'm going for... What I'm trying to make happen by doing this, by being this stopgap, by explaining all this stuff is I am trying to create the death of normies. And by that, I don't mean murdering normies. I mean making it so no one is a normie anymore. And a normie does not mean a normal person. It means somebody who thinks there is such thing as a normal person and is attempting to perform that person because there is no such thing because no two people are that alike. A lot of people think that they are just like a lot of other people, but I've never talked to anyone in my life who described their life to me and I thought that sounds exactly like everyone else. There's always something weird going on, even if it's just because you have a family. You inherently have human connections, and some of the people in your life are themselves abnormal, and that creates abnormalcy in you. If you have a drug addict in your family, even if you try to be as normal as possible, you have to deal with that person. That's an abnormal circumstance that not everybody has to deal with. You've been put into a position to have to deal with something weird. And we all have to deal with something weird. 
The, in fact, the weirdest people are the people who seem to not have to be dealing with anything weird. And you look at those people and you go, what the fuck is up with that guy? So if everybody acknowledged the fact that no one is just normal and they all stopped trying to aim for that as their goal is to come off as, you know, fitting in, you have to realize that you already are weird. You already you are just being accepted. You're being accepted within a certain margin of error. But when things get too weird for people, they won't accept it because they see it as something fundamentally different when it's not. It's just something that's a little farther down. Maybe it starts from a different branch. Maybe they're out on the twigs, but if they cycled over to this other branch, they're, you know, it's all on the same tree. And it's funny because we can easily accept the idea of a just wholly different culture. We can easily accept the idea of like, oh, you are Japanese. Japanese people just think differently. And it's nothing inherent to being born Japanese. It's just inherent to growing up in that culture, to growing up in a culture that has a certain set of ideas. But even then, there's no such thing as like a, a thoroughly Japanese person who only believes things that, you know, conform to the stereotypes of what are generally common beliefs of that culture. And yet, when we see somebody who is a part of our culture ostensibly, but they are divergent enough from us, it's more confusing. We feel like, oh, that person's just a freak, even though they might be closer to our beliefs than somebody from a totally different culture that comes from another country. It's just we don't have a quick, easy label to put on them to explain away why they are different from us. So we just think, oh, well, that guy is just that guy's just fucking a weirdo. But there's always a reason. There's always an explanation. There's always something cultural that made this happen. I might be pretty fucking out there as compared to most people, but that's only because I just am further down a different branch. But if I can explain enough to you, it all feeds back into the same source. We're all coming at this with the same overall intentions. We're all kind of trying to get the same things done. We're just doing it in a different way. And as soon as you can appreciate that, that me being different isn't an attack on your way of life, then we don't have to have this concept of normalcy, this hiding behind the idea that like, oh, well, most people do things this way. Why can't you just be like most people? Well, you find me something that most people on planet Earth actually do other than eat, sleep, shit, breathe. And I'll tell you why I can't just do what normal people do. There was also a comment on the last video saying, basically implying that the idea of higher quality products was a marketing ploy or something. That one really blew my mind because, yes, there is a lot of marketing where they give you something that is ju that's just the same amount of good but different and then they just charge more. Like, yeah, sometimes price just implies different. And quality is not always determined by price, but there very much is such thing as different qualities of products that is extremely existent. Let me give you a perfect example of how you can tell the difference. If you go to McDonald's, you can get cheap food that is low quality. 
If you go to Panda Express, you can get slightly more expensive food that is also low quality. Now, if you go to, let's say, um, a local Thai restaurant, you can get food that is just as expensive as Panda Express, but amazing quality. You can even find great quality food that costs almost nothing. The quality and the cost don't have a relationship to each other. Now, there are some things that just always cost more, like, say, lobster. Lobster costs more because it costs more to make. However, does that mean that lobster is better than a hamburger? I certainly don't think so. It's a matter of taste. But you can't imply that there's no such thing as higher quality products. And for me personally, I'm the type who when I discover something that is high quality, there's no going back after that. And, uh, I, I mean, again, I'll agree with the cost is, is often a meme. Like, when it comes to buying microphone equipment, oh, my God, it's such a nightmare. Because mics, whether or not a mic is good, depends entirely on the purpose you're using it for. They're just built different, and certain mics are better for certain circumstances. You're not just going to get a uniformly better mic by spending more money on it. Um, what I love about Audio-Technica as a company is that they tend to make products that are slightly above low end, they're not like cheap, they're pretty much as good as any average consumer will need them to be at the lowest price they possibly could be. The microphones I use are AT4040s, they're $300 a piece, I have two of them. I used to have an AT2020, it was slightly worse, still a really good microphone, but the AT4040 is as much quality as I could possibly need to make any noticeable difference to my listeners. But they're not that great at picking up singing. Does this mean I need a more expensive mic? No, it means that I need a mic that is good for singing. But people get it in their head that, you know, because they want to simplify everything, if I spend more money, I get a better product. That's not the case. But to try and then spin that in the other direction and say there's no such thing as better quality products is fucking asinine. I mean, I think that should be obvious. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with me on that one. I just (laughs) thought it was super fucking strange to make the argument that higher quality was a marketing scam. It's not. I know because my life has gotten measurably better by owning higher quality things, by not having to replace things as often. You know, like I I had this pair of Brooks Brothers shoes that I bought for like probably $100, $110 back in 2012 when I first got my job at Target. It was one of my early purchases was, was, you know, my first ever paying for my own nice pair of shoes. And those shoes lasted me like five years. I've never had another pair of shoes that lasted that long because Brooks Brothers is a company who puts their emphasis on the quality of the shoe. You can buy shoes from other companies that cost just as much and fall apart easier, but those shoes are high enough quality that they will last you. You just need to figure out What are the high quality options? And that's not easy because everyone's going to advertise themselves as high quality and the average consumer hasn't done any research and can't give you the answers. So maybe you can find somebody who can tell you what is the best. Like, for instance, when it comes to microphones, you can't. Nobody knows. Nobody can tell you. They can tell you that the microphone they got worked for the purpose they needed it for. 
But most people don't go buying every type of microphone to test them out and figure out which one's the best for every conceivable purpose because uh, that would be expensive and, you know, it serves no purpose other than a, for your own curiosity, <laughs> you know, um, unless you have the money to blow on doing that, which nobody does because they're expensive. But, like, if you have something that you could try something different every time, you know, like if your shoes fall apart in a year, try a different brand. If those ones last two years, now you know which one was higher quality. You, you see what I'm saying? It's just a good way to live your life. Constantly try new things. That's how I find out what the good restaurants are. I eat at every restaurant that I find and I narrow it down into which ones are high quality and which ones aren't. And then I go to the ones that I like on the basis of how much I want to spend that day because there's quality at every level of price. So there's this dipshit fucking normie-ass NPC meme that I see around Twitter about how things are canceled now, how it's 2019 and we're canceling uh, this person or ideology or whatever. And I'm going to go ahead and join in on it. You know why? Because I think it's time to cancel physical media. I think physical media should be canceled. No more. It's over. Not all of it. I'm still okay with I'm still okay with tactile books and reading experiences. I'm mostly fixated on physical media releases of things that are just as good, if not better. In fact, we'll just say they're better as digital media. For instance, DVDs and Blu-rays, these need to not be a thing anymore. This is not something that has any right to persist. It is you are doing yourself a disservice if you are purchasing DVDs or Blu-rays. You are making what I would consider a harmful economic decision by even putting money in the hands of people who are creating these things and making them think it's okay to do this. You are actively harming the entire culture, the whole world, all right? I'm getting real fucking serious about this. I really think it's time for this to be over. And you know why? Because every fucking time I try to actually use one of the DVDs or Blu-rays that I own, it's a huge fucking pain in the ass. I was trying to watch the Revolutionary Girl Utena movie. I have it on DVD. I put it in to this fucking shitty computer that I have in the living room that even though it, it has modern specs and should be a perfectly viable machine, for some reason has some alien issue that nobody understands that even the guy who built the computer couldn't figure out exactly why it was having these issues where it just uh, the, the video driver just crashes or it restarts out of nowhere or just just uh, the last couple of days it just doesn't come on anymore it it comes onto a black screen and nothing else so this piece of shit computer is trying to run this DVD and first of all, there's unskippable fucking uh, logos that you have to sit through right when you put it in. I'm pressing, you know, all these buttons trying to skip. There's no way to skip it. So already, this is a worse experience than if I had just ripped this, if I had just got a torrent of this movie and just watched that torrent, even if all other things were exactly equal, this would already make it a worse experience. If not the fact that I had to get up and open the case and put it in to the disk drive, which can be a bigger pain in the ass depending on how complex the packaging is. But 
you know, I'm willing to say, okay, well, if it's a torrent, I would have had to go locate a torrent and put it into my, you know, to my tracker and download it. That would have taken some time. So, like, we'll we'll say there's some allowance for wasting my fucking time here. But since this computer is herniating on me, the fucking thing keeps, the, the window keeps shrinking and I have to resize it or the monitor just goes out and comes back in. Now, this is obviously a problem with the computer, right? It's not a problem inherent to DVDs, even though I have had problems like this pretty often with computers just not being able to run DVDs well. It just seems like a lot of the software, which sometimes you have to use because some of these DVDs only work with proprietary fucking software. But because of these issues, I'm like, okay, fuck the computer. Let's try playing it on the PS4. So I put this thing into the PS4, and for no apparent reason, the quality of the image is just way worse. I can't tell why. It just seems like it didn't upscale correctly. It just looks like shit. So now I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to go online and try to find somewhere I can stream this fucking movie. And I can't find a viable stream of it, of course. So... I'm just thinking the best way to experience this movie where I don't have to worry about whether or not this computer is going to react to the DVD, whether or not I even have a drive. When I built my last computer, I just didn't even think to put a disc drive in it. I ended up having to buy one separately just so I could watch Blu-rays, and then I put them in, and it has all this copy protection that makes it so I can't, like, screen record if I have a fucking DVD on when I want to take footage of it for a goddamn video I want to make. Uh, you've got fucking, if you put in Ponyo, if I want to watch Ponyo, I have to sit through, like, ten minutes of Disney movie previews that are unskippable. I hate Disney movies. I would rather chop off my fucking nuts than have to sit through this bullshit, and I have to do it to watch Ponyo after I paid money for it. I paid for this disc, and I have to watch commercials. This is why I don't pay for Hulu, because you can pay for the service and still have to watch commercials. It's fucking ridiculous. When I can just torrent it, and it'll be... In the best possible quality, it'll have the best possible subtitles, it, it, will, it will be immediately available, easily transferable between different computers. I can have it on a server and have it be accessible to any computer in the house. I could have it on a cloud. I could have it on Plex and be able to let other people stream it from my file. I could do so much. Just by having a download that I can't do with a DVD or Blu-ray. And there's no reason that this experience I'm describing couldn't be sold to me. There's no reason. And I understand that it's not easy to get people to pay for, say, a download. And what are we going to do once they have the download? They can. It's so easy to reshare. It's already easy to reshare. Everything is already ripped. Everything's already available as a torrent. You have to put that out of mind. Don't even consider the repercussions of sending people a file because they can already get it. And you're not going to stop it. You can't stop it. You can take the websites down. They come right back. You can take a torrent down. It comes right back. It's always somewhere. You know, you can remove the listings from Google, but there will be other listings Google hasn't removed yet. Do you know how fucking easy it is to watch anything streamed? You just type the name of it and stream into Google. 
Now, the only reason that this didn't work with the Revolutionary Girl Utena movie specifically is that for whatever godforsaken reason, Nine Anime had the subtitles for the fucking director commentary on the screen. Otherwise, it was amazing quality. This is a, a, a very rare hiccup. And for what it's worth, the movie was on YouTube just in worse quality than the DVD. If I hadn't owned the DVD, I would have just watched it in worse quality on YouTube. Or I would have gone and found a torrent, which is more likely. So there's no hiding the fact that we can torrent whatever we want. And it is a better experience. It's lower effort. It costs nothing. And it has higher quality, more options. I can do all kinds of things with these files. And every second that you spend trying to convince me through force of what? Guilt? To go buy a physical media thing? It's not going to work. Why would I feel guilty about getting the best possible experience? Even if I bought the DVD. I own a lot of DVDs. I don't watch any of them, most of the time. This was a really rare occurrence that I put in Utena, and honestly, every time I do it, I run into these problems. Every fucking time. I run into, oh, this one won't read on this machine, this one just, for some reason, uh, whatever copy protection it has doesn't work with the fucking, you know, the, the rig that I have set up. I'm just constantly running into these fucking pitfalls, just so I just want to play the fucking DVD, and then I just, immediately I tend to give up and just go, alright, watch Princess Nine, Google, bam, it's right there, you know, I don't have to do any thought, and moreover, if I were to just go and buy, like, a big ass hard drive, and just fill it with all the shit I ever want to watch, I'll never even have to think about it again. It'll just all be right there. How can this not be something that is being offered when it's the best possible experience? Isn't the whole point of selling something to me supposed to be that I can get the best experience from it? Why would I ever choose to pay for the worst experience? This is, I mean, I I, I know I'm just repeating things that have been said, and I'm going to quote Gabe Newell once again, as everybody does, that for some reason, even though this gets brought up in every conversation on the subject, nobody who's an opponent of piracy ever seems to address this, that piracy is a service problem. Piracy only occurs when you can't give the user the best possible experience. The reason that Steam has been able to have, has worked so fucking well and made so much fucking money is that it's so easy to use as compared to piracy that you would rather pay to have a game on there than to have to go track down a torrent. So when it comes to something like, say, anime, how is it that there's not just one website or maybe two, it doesn't matter, a website where I can go, and it is just an index of every conceivable anime. They're all uploaded by, you know, whatever company has the rights to it, just like on Steam. Think of this as just basically Steam, but for anime. All the animes listed there, and I can just click on an anime's page. It says, you know, 
$15 to download the whole first season. Sick. Bam. I'm paying for it. And it's right there. I have the files. I can do as I please with them. Make it so I can stream them across multiple devices. You know, make it so I, I maybe I just have access to a cloud where I can stream it on all my devices and I get a download. Holy fuck. Of course I'd pay for that. If I could just have an app that's on all of my devices, like a Crunchyroll, like a Plex, basically, where I just open it up and it goes to my library of shows I've purchased and I can either stream them from a computer that is somewhere else, you know, or I can download it onto the device I am holding and watch it right there. This, I would pay for this. I would easily pay for this. You're going to have to lower the cost and sure, maybe... This, you know, I understand the fear that like, okay, well, you're going to have to charge very little for these individual downloads, you know, in order for this to work. And DVDs historically have made their money off of a small pool of people paying a large amount of money. Well, if you make it cheaper, more people will want to buy it. And you can easily spread your shows around now because you don't have to rely on an insular community of people propping up shows like it's very easy to get anything talked about just by the fact the virtue that every anime is on the fucking mal chart and so everyone has exposure to it anybody who looks up a seasonal chart at all sees the list of every fucking show here's an idea how about in this app that i'm proposing there is a seasonal chart that is better written than the ones that come out, has more information, has trailer clips for the show, has, I mean, basically a Mal page for the fucking show is what I'm advocating for. Just import Mal into a Steam-like app and sell me anime that way, and I might buy it. But you also should have it so each episode, each show has maybe uh, two episodes you can watch for free. There should always be some kind of element of try before you buy. Maybe even just have the shows available for streaming if you're paying for uh, a premium version of the app. Then you can just watch everything that's on the app and then you can choose to pay on top of that to download the shows that you liked. So say you're paying $7 for a Crunchyroll-esque subscription and you get access to all the shows. But then if you watch a show and you go, wow, that show is fucking dope. I want to be able to watch it, you know, forever and have it, have the file on my computer. I'm going to pay the $10 payment to get all the files, you know, just like this would be a good enough experience that people would not torrent because it's just it's just so easy and everything would be there immediately i just think that enough people give enough of a shit and would rather it be easier that this this could feasibly work and anything that's happening right now it might be even progressing in a direction like that but it's not good enough it's not good enough for me and i i reject it i reject the notion that i should be expected to subject myself to a worse-than-ideal experience on the grounds of morals. I want the ideal experience. If you can give me that, I'll pay for it. If you can't, I won't pay you anything. Here's something that really fucking pisses me off. It's when people talk about how you shouldn't platform something. When people start talking about platforming, I get really mad. Because in my mind... The best way for the world to be is for me to have access to as much information as possible 
as easily as possible. I want to know what everyone thinks. I want to know why they think it. I want to know what is the evidence. I want to know everything going on as easily as I can possibly learn it. And that way I can observe all of the information available and make informed decisions. If you think they're wrong, argue against them. Make your case. Be more believable. Be better argued. And then when people hear the two of you speak, they will come to the conclusion, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This guy clearly knows what he's talking about. But if you try to say, oh, you know, this guy is wrong and therefore we have to take away his voice. Well, now you look even less believable. You look like you couldn't even defend your position. Like you don't even know why you're right. And you're so worried about this guy spreading misinformation. Well, the only way that this information is getting spread is if people are too stupid. It's if people just want to believe in what this guy's saying because it's easier than processing something more complicated. And if that's the case, that speaks to a problem with our values as a society and how we're educating people. I really have a problem with this idea that the media is automatically just going to trick people, that people are going to hear things and just automatically believe it, that we're so susceptible to, you know, to ideas that we will just go along with anything anybody says. And yes, there's a lot of stupid people in the world. But people are not inherently stupid. Nobody just comes out of the womb stupid, except in maybe some really rare, extreme cases. But people become stupid because their parents are stupid, or their teachers are stupid, or the whole society is stupid. And we can fix that. We can fix stupidity. It's not easy. It might take generations. It might take massive overhauling of how we do things, um, you know, it would take a, a really strong effort on the part of a lot of people over a period of a long time, but I think it would be worth doing. I think it would be worth however much effort it took over however long of a span to try and fix this brand of stupid by just changing the way that we, just changing our values. And how do you change those values? You don't do it by seizing control and demanding that people think one way. You just be better at arguing. You just be more convincing. Have charismatic people who are capable of understanding the concepts that you want to portray communicate those concepts to people in ways that they can understand, convince them, and then, you know, have those people now educate the others that they know and so on and so forth. It's, uh, it's just a matter of teaching people how to think critically. And we don't emphasize it enough as it stands, but I do think we've moved further and further in that direction. I think it's inarguable that public intelligence has risen considerably in the last hundred years or so. I think nobody would argue that we aren't smarter collectively now than we were even 40 years ago. Like, the the IQ of the human race and the amount of perspective we are capable of intaking in this internet age is – it's skyrocketed. And so when people say something like, if you give this guy a platform, it's going to 
inspire a bunch of other people to, you know, to to think the same wrong way that he does. Well, okay, but we're also putting that wrong idea in the limelight, in a position for us to criticize it, in a position where enough people who disagree with it and think it's stupid are going to hear it, and they have the opportunity to raise a counter-argument. What is more powerful than that? What is a better way to crush an ideology than to make the person who holds it look stupid? And you can't do that if you hide from them, because then you make them look dangerous. You make them look scary when you do that. And I have experience with this because I've been on – I've kind of been on the wrong side of this before. And I was somebody who, you know, at one point I I had advocated for closing comment sections. I had closed my comment section for a brief time. And it wasn't so much out of fear of trolls or anything like that. It was more out of being annoyed because I used to check my comments all the time. And it was just wasting a lot of my life. Eventually – I opened the comments back up because I realized that I personally valued them a lot more than I had realized. I realized just how often I go down into the comments, not just on my own videos, but on other people's videos, either for information that I want to see if anybody has presented that might bolster the video or to hear another take or just to, you know, check for mistakes that I might have made in my own videos, you know, and I realized how much I valued it. And how much I didn't want it gone. And I think that in running away from comments, I made them more powerful. I made them more potent. Because it's like, this guy can't even take criticism. It's the way people took it. You know, people took it as this guy runs away from criticism. And that emboldens the criticism. It makes those people feel like they won. Like they were right. Yeah, this guy really was a piece of shit. He couldn't even defend himself. He couldn't, you know, he couldn't fight his way out of this. And so when I when I think about that, it's like even if that wasn't really how I felt about it because I wasn't really so much dodging criticism as just trying to cut something out of my life that was taking up too much of my time, the fact that that is the optic that comes away from it, it's like, well, okay, Rather than this, if I want to make these commenters, you know, go away, the way to do this is not by emboldening them and making them feel that they've won. It would be by just having them talk to me and make them look stupid. And that was kind of what I was going for with my Digibro versus Everybody show, which worked out really well because I would just bring on people who were criticizing me openly on the internet, argue with them about their stance. And even if I couldn't convince them, I could convince the people watching by way of what I was saying. And people online, while they will be sycophantic, they will suck your cock if they, you know, have a bias towards you. At the same time, you can only be so wrong. I have seen fan bases turn on people. I've seen the way that if you are really out of touch, if you're really incorrect, you're going to hear about it. And... I've had times where I, you know, I concluded myself based on the feedback that I got that maybe this position I had, such as closing comments, was out of touch, that, you know, that I was making a wrong choice. And so I know that people will react, but when I have someone on and I'm blasting them and 
all the comments on the chat are blasting them. And then people are blasting them on Twitter afterwards because what they said was stupid. I've seen those people shut the fuck up. I've seen them go, oh, fuck. I am making myself look stupid. If you want the perfect example of this, look no further than Turkey Tom. This guy came at me in a video where, you know, he's a drama monger guy. Um, and he just had some video, like an anti-Digibro hate video that was mostly informed by other people and like hot takes he'd seen online because he didn't really know much about me. He clearly had not really consumed much of my content. He just saw me painted as a lol cow by certain people on, say, Kiwi Farms or Encyclopedia Dramatica, was probably encouraged by someone to go after me and just went for it. And the blowback he got was enormous because not only did my fans, first of all, catch the video and go, wow, this is shit. And so already he has a bunch of contentious comments and a bunch of dislikes. But then I invite him onto my show to debate with him and I make him look stupid. And my comments are just viciously after him. And I talk him into at rethinking his, you know, his stance. First of all, I got him to change the thumbnail of the video that was trying, that literally just said like, Digibro is a pedophile or something like that. I I sort of guilted him into changing it. Eventually, he took this video down. It is hidden, I think. I, I, last time I checked, I couldn't find it. Um, because he clearly realized he was wrong. Whether or not he changed his opinion of me, he realized that expressing this opinion made him look stupid and out of touch. Presenting this case was hurting him. And so, by platforming him... By inviting him onto my podcast and just making him look stupid, I did something that was far more powerful than if I had tried to ignore him or silence him. Because that would have just invigorated his fan base. Now, part of what bothers me so much about all this is that we I feel like we've been through this as a culture several times already. I feel like we're trapped in this weird cycle... And, like, weirdly, people who should have learned the lesson are the ones falling for the trap. I think back to the 90s and all the violent media that was getting popular at that time and how there was this huge push against violent video games saying it was going to make kids violent and shit. And the cultural decision came down against those people. In the end, we became desensitized to this violence And it never changed the way people behaved. People wanted to blame it for school shootings because it just so happened that the school shooters also played violent video games. And yet, there was no data to corroborate the idea that video games had increased violence. And in fact, I don't know if this was just coincidental or if there was any, I mean, no, cause, correlation does not denote causation, but it was a pretty funny statistic that gun violence began plummeting in America at the same exact year that Doom, the first major first-person shooter, had come out. I don't know if that's purely coincidence, and I don't think that statistic has remained consistent, but gun deaths were going down from the early 90s onwards. Now, surely some of these kids might be inspired by what they see in video games to base their violent tirade on. Like, you already are planning to kill a bunch of people. What if we tried to do it in a way that resembles Doom? That's not the same as a video game making somebody violent. That's somebody who's violent 
you know, using their cachet of experiences to inform their violence. I don't think there has ever been any evidence to suggest that violence actually, in video games, actually causes people to become violent. And, you know, I know how much everyone hates anecdotes, but just speaking for me personally, seeing violence in media has always horrified me and made me terrified of violence. Like, my takeaway from violence in media has always been like, wow, this world is really fucked up. It really sucks that there's so much violence in the world. And I love playing violent video games, but I don't associate it with anything real. To me, it's just the catharsis of a button press, the the feeling in, in way. It's just a context that makes sense for this type of action that is fun to perform, but it doesn't it doesn't register as any kind of analog to real life in my mind. And, I mean, the very definition of insanity, uh, you know, a realistic one, not the stupid bullshit pop media one that always gets fucking recycled, um, is that you can't distinguish reality from fantasy. It's that you think, you think that the world operates in a way that it doesn't. And if you look at, you know, the manifestos of, of some of these killers, somebody like Elliot Roger, it is so obvious that this guy was off his fucking rocker. Like, his, his he was totally crazy because he had a shit life. You know, I mean, even though it's not that he had, like, a shitty life in comparison to, you know, he was a privileged kid, but his takeaway, the way that his experiences had informed the kind of person he became was you know, a, a warped perspective. And he was a, just like any monster, a created monster. It's, it's, it's never just inherent. And it's also not informed by any one source. It's everything. It's everything that shapes you into who you are. And anytime you look at one of these people who, you know, shoots up a school or something and you learn about their backstory, uh, it's always fucking obvious that they would be a school shooter. Like, it's never like, oh, wow, I wonder what went wrong in this guy's life. No, it's usually pretty fucking plain as day. Like, I think about, because, you know, I happen to have a perfectly suitable anecdote about the fact that one of my friends from elementary school in high school almost shot up his school. He's served a, I don't know if he's out yet, but he's served like a 15-year prison sentence for mass. Mom said he's out. What? Is he out? I think so. He might be out. Um... You can look him up, Philip Bay. He uh, he mass manufactured a bunch of fucking bombs and guns and was going to shoot up a school. Um, he got caught before it happened. But based on my knowledge of Philip Bay, having grown up with him in elementary school for a few years, like when I heard, I was immediately like, oh yeah, of course. Because he was this dweeby little asshole kid who never shut the fuck up about Star Wars and fucking Daft Punk, and he would just go on and on and on about everything he cared about, and people would just tell him to shut up. People couldn't stand him. Like, he was in my Cub Scout troop, so he was at my house, you know, every weekend, and my mom could not stand to have this fucking kid over because he was a spaz. He was fucking, you know, all over the place. He was just obnoxious as shit. And I thought he was cool at the time because he knew lots of things. So I took him as smart, you know, because he, he just had encyclopedic knowledge of things he cared about. Um, but it's just, you know, it's just autism. He was just a really fucking autistic kid. And I ended up 
having not really bad blood, but he clearly had at one point detected that I was not one of the cool kids and totally blew me off for like, we, we started cause initially we weren't going to the same school. He was just in my Cub Scout troop. When we started going to the same school, I thought it would be cool if I ran into him and hung out with him. He never even tried to hang out with me. I think we even lived in the same neighborhood, just like pretty far apart from each other in inside of it. But um, yeah, like he made no attempt to contact me because he knew I was not popular, you know, and he was trying to climb the social ladder. After he was put in prison, I had written a thing about it on my uh, Tumblr and I got a response from a girl who had gone to school with him and known him. And the way she described him was basically like this petulant brat who was constantly trying to flirt with girls who all just thought he was annoying and blew him off. And, uh, you know, like she clearly felt bad that like, you know, she had probably like she had turned him down at some point but like she also seemed like she kind of had always thought this is the kind of person he was and i was like yeah i'm not surprised like everything about him checks out it fits the profile there is a clear profile because it's about a way that a person comes up and a way that they're treated and a way that they see themselves and so you know to equate that to media influence It just is – it's so insipid. It's so reductionist. It's like, sure, the media had some influence on them, but it did not create this. To even suggest that is such a massive deflection away from the people who are always most responsible, which is parents, teachers, society, peers, just humans – you know, that's the people who have the most effect on you is the people in your life. And when you look at the people in these people's lives, you always come to the same obvious conclusions. So, in that vein, I think about how, when I was growing up, the people who were the most anti-censorship were the liberals. Because the whole conception of what even is a conservative, growing up for me was the stereotypical religious conservative who wants to ban video games, who wants to, you know, who who is against same-sex marriage, who is just, like, incorrigibly against societal progress. I mean, that's what conservative suggests in the word, that you want to conserve things as the way they are. And so, I, growing up as a liberal, was in a position of extreme pro-free speech. That was the position of that party. That was the position of people, you know, who were spe- who were liberal talking heads throughout the 2000s was to to press for free speech, to press against the conservative Christian values. And then somehow that association is now the ones advocating deplatforming. These are now the people who are saying that certain jokes aren't funny because they don't get them. That are saying that if people keep spreading these ideas, then it's going to affect the way, you know, it's going to spread misinformation. Well, motherfucker, if your information is so much better, be more convincing. Platform your enemies and then beat them at the argument. Make them look stupid. Because... 
hiding from them and telling people, like shaming people for platforming them, invigorates it every time. Everyone who gets deplatformed immediately becomes a martyr. And we see this even with people who generally are not liked. Like, Sargon of Akkad, I was just watching this documentary, The Sargonian Effect, by a guy called um, Porcelain, P-O-R-S-A-L-I-N, pretty fucking funny videos. And he clearly um, wants to be about as offensive as possible in ways that are fucking hilarious. I don't know really what his political slant actually is. Because with guys like this, I can always be convinced that they're just trying to be funny. But I'm sure he is pretty right-wing based on the shit that he memes about. But at the same time, to me, I don't. it doesn't change anything about my viewpoint to watch him. I just think the way he says things is funny. But his whole video is an hour and 45-minute takedown of Sargon of Akkad for being a fucking moron. And this is a guy who he's on the same side as. They have a lot of the same opinions. He thinks that this guy, you know, is 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 fighting relatively on his side of the battle of culture, I guess. And yet, because this guy fucked up so badly, so many times, he had already lost the respect of most of the people associated with his political movement. The only people who took Sargon seriously after a certain point were the people on the left, the people who were against him because they, you know, they remember him as the boogeyman of the fucking Gamergate movement and think that he's really important. But he was already on a downturn where everyone else in what was once his movement is shitting on him, is like ragging on him. And the only reason that he catches this second wind of relevance is that Patreon deplatformed him. And... I don't even care about whether or not Patreon was right to do it. The fact of the matter is, this empowered him to come back. No one cared about Sargon of Akkad anymore. He was a fading name. He was becoming a meme, even among his sort of constituency. And then, he suddenly is relevant again, because he got deplatformed. And I've seen this happen to so many people where, when they lose their avenue, the people who care about them suddenly pour way more money into them. They get to show up on everybody's podcast who is relevant to their sphere at all. They become literally a martyr for the cause. And then eventually that team is going to build their own structure. If you keep deplatforming people, they're just going to build a new platform because at some point it won't be profitable enough for them to stay on the ones that exist. And maybe that's what they want, but I don't think so because it seems like these companies are all trending towards trying to monopolize social media. They're all trending towards trying to be the one-stop shop of everything you need. And yet they keep kicking people off. And I think that there's this idea that it's just extremists. It's just extremists we're kicking off. It's just people who you wouldn't want to hear their viewpoint because their viewpoint is offensive. Well, the more of those people you kick off, the more people who just don't like to see someone kicked off of a platform are now suddenly backing those people. The more people who just want the free exchange of ideas, even ones they disagree with, are just going to make a new platform. And it's happening. There's been a lot of attempts, but they keep getting better. 
they keep getting further and further along because people get more and more serious about it the more these people are kicked. If anything, it's the best thing you could do for that side to keep kicking them off of platforms because it's just emboldening them. It's just making people angrier and it's just forming enough of a divide that they legitimately can build their own internet. And what goes on on that internet, the other internet will have no idea about. It'll be two entirely different internets with their whole entire own cultures. And the problem with that is that both of them have to be involved in policy making. And so the more both sides don't understand each other, the more stratified they become, the more it becomes us and them, two entirely different cultures warring for control, who are more and more offended at each other, who are more and more emboldened and embittered, until a point where it could get to be a lot worse of a situation. It could get to a point where people are prone more prone to violence. And I mean, we see some of this emerging as there's more fights breaking out between people of ideologically opposed groups. And I just feel like this is entirely the wrong way to go about things because it would be so much easier to just have everyone on the same platform just arguing their points. Give them as many you know, times to argue as possible so that they can just make themselves look stupid. Make themselves become antiquated. And if they eventually win out, it might just mean their ideas were better. It might just mean that they were more right because ultimately mob rule tends to be more correct than individual views. And anybody whose opinion is so extreme that the mob would reject it, that person's never going to rise to power. And I know people will cite things like Hitler and be like, oh, well, what about Hitler? Well, that is such a weird example because it's not really like he rose to power on the basis of the fact that he wanted to kill Jews. He rose to power on the basis of the fact that the German economy was completely devastated after World War One, and, you know, he was a, a, a charismatic guy who was – I'm not going to get down a fucking Hitler hole here, but my point is that it's not a worthwhile comparison to the entire internet making judgments about someone's opinions of how the world should be. Like, if somebody is seen as an extremist, they will always have their little cult, but it's never going to just magically convince the average everyday person who thinks that they sound insane. I mean, like, yeah, there are people who legitimately follow Alex Jones and, and, like, take him seriously. That is such a tiny minority of the people who even, like know who he is like he's famous for being a crazy person he's famous as a sideshow attraction that people like to watch because it's funny to see somebody be so fucking crazy you know and so like to to say like oh don't platform that guy because he spreads misinformation well platform him so that he can make himself look so crazy that nobody would listen to anything he has to say. Because even if they hear one thing that maybe they thought sounded kind of legitimate, when they hear all the other shit that comes out of his mouth, they're going to go, oh, fuck, this guy's a lot crazier than I thought. And in fact, I think the best way to trap people is to platform them too much for their own good. Get them feeling more comfortable that they can say their more extreme viewpoints so that when they finally hit that thing that nobody agrees with that they believe then everybody can turn away. And it's not that hard to make it happen. 
I mean, you look at somebody like like JonTron, who got ousted by his own audience the second he even opened his mouth about politics, because right away, the things he said just sounded too extreme and too poorly conceived. And, you know, he, he lost his whole entire subreddit who just decided to become a subreddit for someone else because fuck JonTron. And granted, it's not like the guy is out of a career, but he certainly isn't making political statements anymore. He certainly is staying far the fuck away from that. He's definitely not converting any young minds to his side because the second he opened his mouth, he got blown the fuck out because he just sounded too crazy. So I'm telling you, give platform to everybody. They will undo themselves. They will fuck themselves if they are wrong. If they are not wrong, then they will more likely become a more popular opinion. And then it's up for you to really look inside yourselves and figure out, am I wrong? And if not, how can I prove it? How can I make people understand that I am right by arguing better?